0: Welcome to The Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action.
1: Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. This is Charlie Gilkey, and I'm delighted to have Laura Coe with me on The Creative Giant Show. Laura is an entrepreneur, author, and certified coach working to help you find fulfillment one day at a time through daily emotional workout routines, nutritional thoughts, and other tools. Laura co-founded Litholink Corporation, a healthcare company serving over 350,000 patients per month nationally. When Litholink sold to a Fortune 500 company, she left corporate America to pursue lifelong passions. Now she devotes her energy towards writing and coaching helping others implement spiritual teachings in their everyday lives. Her first book, Emotional Emotional Obesity, is scheduled for release January 2015. Laura, thanks so much for doing your great work and being on the show with us today.
0: Thank you so much. I am so excited to talk to you today. And um, I wanted to say I've been listening to your podcasts and they're incredible. So I'm excited to be part of it.
1: Yeah, thanks for the feedback there. They've been really, really fun to do. And they're just a great way to talk about what's up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're, fan- they're fantastic. All right. So Laura is actually one of one of the new creative giants to me. I met her a few months ago. And so it's been a really delightful conversation. She's got this really phenomenal corporate background and then she's got some philosophy background, which may come up during the call. Um, and she's made this really important transition, which is come, sometimes can be really challenging for people to go from one sort of world to the world that she lives in now. So, Um, let's look at it this way. So everybody else is in the loop with what's going on. Tell us how you moved from being a co-founder of a corporate healthcare service to an author addressing emotional health issues. Um, just, just so we all have a background there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I had, uh, started a healthcare company, like you mentioned, and, um, Six years ago, I had everything most people would equate with success. Um, I built a multi-million dollar company and sold it to a Fortune 500. Um, I had a loving partner and a three-year-old son. Um, I was even teaching some yoga on the side, (laughs) so it it was really great. So everything looked really great from the outside, but I found myself chronically stressed and stressed to a point that, you know, wasn't healthy. Um, So I realized that all of these so-called successes that I was having in my life weren't really coming from my authentic self. They were kind of coming from these learned values, these learned ideas of what a good life might look like. Um, And I realized I might not be the only person that's living that way. So um, I dove back into my philosophy roots, which we've talked about. I was an undergrad and graduate student in philosophy and um, a student of it for the last 20 years. And just got very curious about what was going on with me. And that's when I realized that I thought I was emotionally obese. (laughs) And um, the idea of that is that this layering had happened of other people's values and ideas of what a good life would look like. Um, And I had taken them on as my own.
1: Yeah, I love the term emotional obesity and emotionally obese, right? Because... um, when we look at it, and this is going to be very heavily Aristotelian, right? But we have these different aspects of ourselves. We have the physical, emotional, social, mental, and Aristotle wouldn't put this in, but I'm going to put it in the spiritual part of it as well, right? And we can be yeah. entirely too lean, and we can be entirely too obese on each one of those, you know, as you go along. And it seems like um, from a from a um, flourishing point of view, from a thriving point of view, it's finding that right fit for each of us. So um, you know, when we look at this emotional aspect of it, we can be emotional lean, like we could be over Spartan in the sense that we just are more like the Spock, right? We're not really tapping into part of what makes us wonderfully human, but maybe on the other side, we're taking on too much and we're, I don't know. I don't know. We don't, we don't have a good analog right now for emotional, uh, for an emotionally obese person. We don't have a Spock. So um, that's why I want to talk about this. So talk to me a little bit more about emotional obesity. Some of the Uh, principles of it or just give us give us a feel for what that means
0: yeah um really the best way to explain it is to maybe explain a little bit of my my process and realizing what emotional obesity looked like through my own journey and you know maybe an example or two with my clients but it's really this idea that um you know i like your example of of being um overly fit or overly uh overly obese in certain ways and neither is really good and what we mean by that is, you know, going to extremes or possibly doing things um, at a level that isn't really supportive or um, useful to our goals. So the way I think about emotional obesity is, you know, we we as little children um, have a very good sense of what we love and what we don't love and, you know, when we're happy, when we're not happy. And somewhere along the way, we start to adopt other people's opinions about what feels good, what makes us happy, what feels like the right life. And as we navigate our way towards the things that we love, we take on those other views, um, and that's what I call an emotional layer. So say you are moving towards uh, becoming a doctor in school, but your passion's an entrepreneurship, um, and you've heard in the world or through your parents that becoming a doctor is the safer route, the better route, the you know, more sophisticated, and emotional obesity can come in any form. It's just these adopted, learned values. And you wake up one day and find yourself, you know, a physician, maybe at Harvard, maybe doing really well, but very unfulfilled. So the idea that um, matters to me is not what you do, but how you feel when you're there. Does it feel heavy, or do you feel a sense of lightness and enthusiasm towards your life? Um, If you've layered on other people's views, it tends to get very heavy. If you've gone in the direction of what you love, um, it feels different, you know, and people talk this way all the time. We just, uh, I just put a little more uh, terminology around
1: the metaphor. (laughs) Cool, cool. You know, while you were thinking, or while you were talking about that, I was thinking about um, my fat pants, okay? (laughs) Because it's it's just after Thanksgiving, I've picked up a little weight here, right? It's, um, I'm, I'm not super ashamed about it, I wish I wouldn't, but still. But I have a set of okay. pants, right, where you know that, like, when you put on the pants, it's like, oh, it's time to trim back just a little bit, right, or to hit the gym a little bit more, or, you know, maybe a few eyes like, would be good. The interesting thing about it is it seems like with emotional obesity that we don't have, like, the fat pants, right, that we put on. And I'm, I'm sure I'm pissing a lot of people off about the fat pants, but you you understand what I'm saying, Laura, right? We have we have an external, we have a physical check on, our, on the physical dimension that shows us, when we're going to an extreme or when we're out of when we're out of shape as it were but we don't seem to have that when there's on the emotional front or do we
0: right that's that's a great point Um, this is what makes this idea of how to find what you love so complicated and then in the end really it's really simple but it's not tangible it's um, abstract so how do you identify emotional weight in your life if you can't point to the the pants like you said or a scale or a doctor that's going to tell us or um, you know forgetting weight itself but the effects of weight illness. Um, We have systems in our culture designed to help us navigate our physical health, uh, gyms, um, you know, weight loss clinics—it's—it's it's sort of endless. And that's really the agenda that I have. Is that you know I'm not a therapist or a guru, but I think of myself as somebody who's hoping to start a movement around the idea of um, creating more systems to help us navigate losing emotional weight. Um, but what I will say is that that sense of heaviness, right? That even if your pants um, were a little bigger <laughs> and you still had a little room, you can kind of tell when your body starts to shift and change. And, you know, I don't feel so hot when I don't eat well and um, I, you know, feel a little bit weighed down the next day. Making choices from the um, emotionally heavy space does the same thing. Maybe, you know, if you make one emotionally heavy decision and you don't honor yourself, you don't feel that bad. But if you do it day over day over day, um, say there's a job that you really hate and you want to quit, but every day you go and you tell yourself that you can't quit and you're not going to leave, that really just starts to weigh a person down. So it's more about noticing the thoughts and the way they make you feel um, and that heaviness that they create.
1: Yeah, so what's really the the relationship between say emotional obesity and self-respect? Because when you mention that doing the thing where like you're overriding what you know is right every way, like that creates cognitive dissonance, it creates, you know, a lack of self-respect, it creates a lack of integrity in a lot of people over time, right? Um, so I may have just answered the question as I was thinking about it, but there there seems to be like this very tight relationship between one's um Self-respect or their own their own view of their own dignity and integrity and emotional weight. But talk to us a little bit about that, so that I'm not confusing things.
0: No, I, I love that question. Um, we um, we get to a certain point in our life, and I'm not sure. I think it comes at a different age for different people, where we stop honoring ourselves and our our deeper self, and we stop feeling the right to the life that we. Um, you know, want to live. And we start to adopt either cultural uh, values or values from family and how we step forward into the world. And so, yeah, I mean, self-respect is, an, is a way of saying it. Um, you could say that you you deny yourself the right to be the person that you are. You erode your um, belief in your deeper authentic self, and that was really how I stumbled on this idea. I um, was in corporate America. I knew I wanted to make a change. We had sold the company. I had a two-year uh, earnout that was ending, and I thought, okay, well, I'm I'm 35. I'm not 25. I'm going to step out into the world and find something that I really deeply love to do next. And I couldn't get there because I had gotten so accustomed to denying my deeper voice, I couldn't find it anymore. So that's this idea of it being layered behind the weight. And when I would think about what I really wanted, I lost that sense of, um, of, of, of just a deep belief that I could have whatever I truly wanted to do. Um, so, yeah, it's a—it's it, 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 I don't like to call it confidence because I think people are very confident I look at it much more as um, denying your sort of God-given right to be who you are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that in some ways we've been talking about emotional obesity in the negative frame, like people who aren't living in accord with their own values, intentions, priorities, so on and so forth. But I also wanted to point out that there's a flip side, too, where when you are living in accord with those values, intentions, priorities, and so forth. It's not that you pick up emotional. um, It's not that everything just disappears because in some ways you end up picking up additional emotional weight because you are in your zone and living that. And there's so much pressure for either martyrdom or there's so much pressure for you not to live in there that you end up with this whole completely different side conversation of, you know, like you're, you're in your own zone and it's like, everyone's, not everyone, it can often be the case where people are pushing, like questioning, like, hey, it's nice. Like, I'll get this for my personal life, right? Occasionally, people will say about Angela, my wife, and I not having kids, it's like, oh, that's an an interesting lifestyle choice, or that that lifestyle choice allows you to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, well, if it's a lifestyle choice, it's a choice either way. And so the fact that we have chosen thus far not to have kids is a choice just as much as having kids. And so the the sort of downstream repercussions of that play out both ways. But on one hand, there's this, there's this um, sort of pushback you get when you step off of that path. And I don't want to go into sort of a conformity, non-conformity conversation because that's actually not useful, right? But it's really about people being super clear about what they're doing, why they're doing it and having to deal with some of the emotional fat of other pe- that other people are sending them that way. Like, do you see that come up in your own work as well?
0: Yeah, so that's why I love this metaphor, and it's been really valuable to me, is, you know, I try to eat a healthy, you know, I, I try to eat healthy every day. I try to exercise, I do yoga, but um, temptation's everywhere. Uh, McDonald's is at every corner. <laughs> it's really hard, um, and I'm not perfect, right? So there's days that I... You know, I love wings, and I just dive into a plate and feel pretty sick, but it's sometimes fun. Um, so it's the same thing. It, um, it's not as though you lose the weight, you fall into your passion, you live this free, beautiful life, and you sort of sail around with the birds in the sky, and, you know, everything feels blissful. It's, it's also, it's like uh, maintaining, you know. Every day you have to get up, put on the jogging shoes, go for the jog, or whatever it is that you do. Um, sometimes you don't. And it's the same thing with emotional fitness. Um, you got to put on the emotional jogging shoes. And in your example, you know, um, as somebody who hasn't had children, that's something that's going to come up on a regular basis. These societal, um, other people's opinions, views on life, uh, pushing into your view, your authentic self, and why we do this, right, is an interesting cultural norm. But, you um, the process is to stay with that authentic self, and during the journey of the two years that I've been writing this book and researching it, I will tell you, I was terrible at this. You know, I I understood the idea, and I believed in it, but then somebody would say something, and i just get knocked off center and, you know, dive into those wings and... <laughs> Eat whatever amount of emotional food I could I could take in and doubt myself and all those doubts would come back. But it was you know get up the next morning, try again, um, you know lift the emotional weights, do the emotional workout, and stay with it, right? So and it gets easier and easier and easier um, as temptation comes my way and people have ideas about my work or what I should be doing. Um, I don't feel Like I can get pushed off center so quickly anymore. My feet are much firmly, more firmly on the ground um, as I feel when I work out on a regular basis.
1: So before you started working on this book, so you said you started around the time you were 35 because that was when the earnout period was. Yeah. Have you ever written a book or anything like that before?
0: No, um, I was uh, the operations side of our company. My brother did sales, strategy, finance, and I took sort of vision, intellectual property, and created product and and what have you. I built all the teams. Um, I was a philosophy undergrad and graduate student, like I mentioned, so I had written quite a bit bit, um, on the subject of spirituality and philosophy and how to think about uh, the life you want and you know, Plato and Aristotle and the conversations you and I have had in the past, but um, as much as I understood or read these things, I'm a big fan of self-help, I mentioned I'm a yoga teacher, I couldn't quite apply it to my life until now, so um, I I haven't written a book um, at all on the subject, and this really did help me get clear on on what worked and didn't work for, for my life.
1: So over the time of where you've been writing this book, what have been some of the biggest challenges that have come up for you where you definitely do use your own framework. You definitely noticed that you had a lot of emotional obesity around certain topics, or do you just kind of feel that like there's some work there I need to go through?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I call it junk food thoughts, right? So um, everybody has cravings. You may want a donut and I might like a bag of chips. Um, and it's not just a certain donut, right? It might be a glazed donut, and it might be Dunkin' Donuts particularly that you can't keep away from. And so I found the same thing with thoughts. There's, For myself and the clients that I work with, there's certain thoughts. It's you know, It might be that um, some people have a sense of low self-worth or not deserving or I'm not capable enough. That was my favorite. But it doesn't come in a generic form. It comes specifically, I didn't have a Ph.D., so I didn't have a right to – to write this book. That was my favorite craving junk food thought. It just plagued me (laughs) for quite a while. And um, so what I figured out was, you know, well, if I'm going to skip the donut and I'm hungry, I need to find something nutritious. So I started adding nutritional thoughts um, against the junk food thoughts. Um, So I started finishing my sentences. Well, what am I talking about? People who have PhDs um, are the only people who can write a book. And I'm like, I look through my own shelf and I'm like, almost every book that I love was not written by a PhD, right? So I started rehearsing that in my head. And when I heard myself talking about PhDs on a bad day and how I don't have one, um, I would come back to that. And uh, that's been really, really effective for me.
1: I had a similar one, by the way, and I'll share it, is about writing books and things like that. Because I'm actually, I came to a point where as much as I liked writing, I realized it was the slowest way of creativity for me. It's like the, the if I wanted to spend years doing something, then that was the slowest way to do it. And so I'm a talker, right? And this is what people who are listening to the podcast are figuring out very very quickly, is I'm a talker. <laughs> and so I was like, "What well, how can I do this so that I can like write it and then tra- and have it transcribed and then edit that and then have some people help me with that part of it?" And I had this severe sort of like feeling of either shame or, or less than because I was like, are there all these other people writing and so on and so forth. But I thought about it and I was like, actually I went back to Aristotle. Like the only reason we had most of Aristotle's work is because his students were actually taking notes of his lectures. He didn't write his own stuff. Right. And you can go back. So, um, so there's also paradise lost by John Milton. He was blind and his daughter actually transcribed the entire, you know, paradise lost. And so he never actually wrote that either. So I found models throughout history of people who had their work transcribed or had their work sort of like they were, they were speakers, they were con- conversationalists and had it edited that way. And I had all these really good examples. I'm like, you know what? It's good enough for Aristotle. It's good enough for Milton. It's good enough for Charlie. <laughs> right. So,
0: That's right. That's right. That's exactly the deal. And people don't, these, um these negative thoughts, they sit out there and we don't check them. We don't, we don't finish, check them against reality, decide whether or not we really believe it's true or not, and they plague us. And typically my clients will have two or three thoughts that are in the way of, you know, changing relationships, getting a new job, following their passion. And it's amazing that that a thought can have that much power over your life. Um, so once you remove them, um, you know, like you said, you, you, you were able to Check out Aristotle, right? And if it's good enough for him, that it's good enough for you, and move on to do what you want to do. And the fascinating thing, Charlie, is, you know, where did you pick up that writing was better than talking, right? Like, how do we, how do we do this to ourselves? Um, it's, it's amazing how we carry that around and we create a shame point around it. Um,
1: yeah, you and I so are on a huge, you know, critique of academia and sort of intellectual society. So we're not going to go that way. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're not going to do it. I promise. But yeah, there's there's one of those things where I recognize where it's, it wasn't wasn't my thoughts as much. It was societal osmosis, like socialization that that was at play. And yep. um, you know what I also figured out very quickly to counterpoint what you were saying about PhDs is actually getting a PhD is one of the best ways to like not be able to write a book that people actually read. Um, and I know that sounds like a critique, but you're trained to write in ways that aren't accessible for a broad category of people. Um, you're trained to be a specialist. And so when you get into the business of actually um, getting out there and making a difference or reaching the most people with a message as possible, unfortunately that PhD, unless you, you really temper it with good editing or good writing or good style can actually be counterproductive to one's ability to make the change that they want to happen. That's been my
0: experience. Yeah. That's what I find so cool is that, you know, we put a PhD on a pedestal as the NLBL and creating a expert out of people. And it does give you an expertise, but it depends on what your goals are. So for the person that really wants to, you know, understand some, my friend is a PhD in in cognitive development of children in a very particular way, that's fantastic and hopefully she'll do great work in the world to help us understand how to better educate children. But if you're just trying to do an entrepreneurial business or, you know, um, in my case, uh, write about the ideas of things that have been really helpful to me, Um, that degree wouldn't be very helpful and I wouldn't really reach the people I'm interested in reaching. So um, yeah, I love breaking down these concepts and moving past them because um, once you look at them, although they're being put out there as the right way, um, they're they're right for some people and you have to find your own right way.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you said that because though my statements about academia and PhDs have seemed to be overly critical, my point is not that they're not that they don't have the utility, that they don't have the place and that they aren't you know, really valuable things. It's just they don't fit all context. Right. And so right. it's easy for us to make our own boogeymans, Um And just I don't know why. Well, actually, I'll ask you, why do we do that? Why do we generate these own boogeymans that we have? Because there's no one that's really out there saying, like, you've got to have this. You've got to do this. Um, I've got my own theories, but I want to hear your theories as well. Like, why do we do that?
0: Yeah, I, I actually believe that um, that is a big part of our upbringing. Um, we we see shows on, on you know, being a doctor, on being a lawyer. There's a handful of things in the world that everybody gives the, the gold star to, a nurse, um, a teacher, and those things are fantastic. And if your life happens to go in the direction of, What culture says is a great way to spend your time and it is immediately obvious to you um, from a young age, I had a friend who wanted to be an architect, and look at that—there's the whole, you know, world of architecture is right there, and everybody loves the idea of architects. And so he quickly, um, at, at as a teenager, said, "I love architecture," and he's an architect, and he's really, really happy. Um, but you know, for a lot of people, it's not like that. We muddle our way through. Our our skills are not as obvious. They're. Um, my brother is a strategist. He's a genius business strategist how would you know that when you're in grammar school or high school we're not always being asked to do um, you know not just strategy but the guys doing you know international business strategy that skill came out later in his life so um, I, that's what I think happens is there's a handful of things that we've um, checked off and the systems are very organized around those and for the rest of us, um we feel bad for going off route but um that's what i feel like the big pushback needs to be is that that's not off route that's just you know you're you're a creative you have different interests um and there's thousands of different ways to express that
1: yeah i'd add that the the additional trick to this is that things that you care about in your teens and 20s might change very rapidly in your 30s and 40s and things like that. So I've sensed the other sense uh, where, you know, people have a lot of emotional obesity because they went down one career track and it was right. It really was right for them at that time and what they needed, so on and so forth. But then they get into it after, you know, seven, ten years and realize, wait a second, there's this whole other area of my life that I want to explore or this, this whole other thing. Maybe they become mm-hmm. a parent. Maybe they have some other major thing happen in their life, right? Um, and yeah. the value shift. And at that point, that's that's where it gets really interesting because it's not just societal stuff. There's also your own historical inertia at play. So on that note, yeah. what are some – let's get tangible really quickly because, you know, we philosophers can do what we do. But um, let's get tangible really quickly. What, what are some sort of practical exercises or – Tips or just things that we can do on a daily basis to, um, you know, check how our emotional pants are fitting.
0: Sure. (laughs) Love the emotional pants. Absolutely. So um, the easiest thing to do real quick is uh, think about the thing that you're currently looking to do, whether it's open a new business, change your career, change your relationship, um, you know, go back to school, whatever it is that's on your mind um, that you're second-guessing when you think of it take a pen and paper and i know pen and paper it's like hokey and people don't love to do it but just real quick try to grab the first couple thoughts that come to mind after you're excited so you have a little bit of enthusiasm you feel excited you can barely say it and then right afterwards people will immediately give out their junk food thought i would but i can't because da, 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 i can't because i can't i i i don't know if it's the right time i'm not sure if put those down those are your junk food thoughts. Um, I don't love positive psych- thinking because it's too generic. It's a one-size-fit-all, like be grateful, um, be positive. I tried that stuff as well, but it didn't work until I got serious about what I needed to be positive about. I had to figure out what are my pitfalls. So figure out what those junk food thoughts are. And then finish your sentence. Is it really true, just like we were talking about? Does that exist in the world? Are there other ways to look at it? Um, can you find an example or a role model or a mentor who is doing it? Um, if you can't think about how to navigate it, is there somebody you can talk to who um, you feel has already been successful in that area? Uh, what is their secret? How do they exactly do it? Um, I'm thinking about doing some talks, and I, you know, I've been talking to people who – go and give speeches everywhere it's been incredible to hear the way they frame it and talk about it it's not at all what I thought so um, then once you you have some of those steps taken care of create some nutritional thoughts I had a client who avoided everything I mean everything so she's this really strong resilient person so she came up with a couple thoughts I'm strong and resilient and I don't avoid I'm strong and resilient and I don't avoid so um, the last part is, Those nutritional thoughts, the quickest way if you're up for it, and not everybody is because it's a little hokey and embarrassing, but uh, if you say it out loud when you're in action, um, neuro-linguistic programming teaches us that um, it's the quickest way to create a new uh, neural path. So if you can take your sentence, say it out loud in action during your day, um, I guarantee that you'll get great results in a very short window of time.
1: Alrighty. So a personal note here before, as we start wrapping up, what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're facing right now?
0: Um, yeah. So, you know, you and I were chatting about this offline just a little bit, but um, I left corporate America to pursue my passion. I struggled through, I found out what it was, and it was to write and talk about spirituality and philosophy and the, the intersect there and how to bring that out to people. Um, I wrote a book and I thought that that was the real challenge. But it turns out the real challenge is that I've started a second company and the product happens to be the book this time. Um, so marketing and selling and navigating how to get that done in this new medium of um, social media and, um, you know, the Internet. When I did my company, it was, it was pre-Internet. So just working all that out has been a real exciting but um, a big challenge.
1: Yeah, so you're on the entrepreneurial roller coaster as it goes. Like, there's the highs, and then there's the lows, and then there's the what the, okay. Um, yeah, that's a fun journey.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I, I, I swore I wasn't going to become an entrepreneur a second time around, but, um, I mean, this is absolutely an entrepreneurial exercise. I'm so grateful, though, for the previous business because those skills have um Come into play so much, finding great people, talenting really, the leverage of other people and their, their skill sets, um, you know, between editors and book covers and um, websites, you know, all of that stuff and bringing it all together, creating a brand, uh, marketing sales channels um so it's it's been interesting to put together i have found that my friendship circle i'm 43 has uh moved towards the 20 year olds <laughs> and that's been really cool too but they uh, they know a lot more than we do <laughs> on these subjects
1: they do they do indeed all right if you want to leave our listeners with just one thing to take away from this podcast what would that be
0: um, the one thing that I would leave you with is to start. Um, people put off stepping into their their life and their authentic space um, because they feel as though at some point in the future they'll be better prepared. Um, the one thing that I have found that has been the brought the most joy to my life has been to step forward even when I'm not ready. And to celebrate the small steps, not the end goal. So I waited the first time to sell the company, get the download of money, to feel that real sense of accomplishment. Um, this time, every little thing, just being on a podcast with you today, Charlie. You know, it's it's a celebration. It's awesome. I'm so excited to be doing it. Um, and each thing is an accomplishment along the road. So. Set yourself up for small wins that you can accomplish. If you want to write uh, by that computer and feel happy that you sat down for 20 minutes. Um, if you want to paint, if you want to start a podcast and you just research some podcasts out there. if you want to start a company and you start writing some level of a business plan, just whatever you accomplish in that day, take the time to, to celebrate that. Um, that momentum will keep you will keep you going. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant show. To find more tools and inspiration for Creative Giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, Creative Giant.